0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts, oh, let the ancient words Alrighty, go ahead and open your Bibles with me the book of Mark. We're going to continue on in Mark chapter 1. be picking up there in just a moment and kind of... Uh, Catching up, I guess you would say, at least making an attempt to catch up. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It's basically where we'll be. While you're turning there, I want to share something with you a little bit um, and be honest with you about something. Uh, in one case, I have been preaching slash teaching the gospel for about 22 years, best I can recall and figure that out. And uh, one of the things I've been I don't know what you call it, blessed or pleased with. I don't know what the word is for that. Is that very rarely, even in 22 years, even in the beginning, have I felt nervous? You know, I don't know why that is. I've just always been comfortable in the pulpit. I've always been confident of what we have, you know, in front of us as far as Scripture goes. But over the course of the last however long it's been, eight or nine weeks, uh, most Wednesdays when I get up here, I'm as nervous as a termite choking on a splinter. And I couldn't figure that out. And of course, last week it really came to a head because our PowerPoint the, didn't work and that kind of threw me for a loop. And I apologize, we got a little bit behind because of that. But I tried to figure out, I've been thinking about it for a few days and trying to figure out what's the difference. What, what's the, if there is a difference, what's the difference? And it's not you all, I'm comfortable with you. You're very supportive and encouraging. Um, so it's not that, it's not the subject really at hand, it's scripture. I mean, where else am I going to go to preach? You can't go anywhere else or teach. You shouldn't be going anywhere but straight to the source, to God's word. And I still couldn't figure that out. And it dawned on me today, this is my theory. Uh, And I'm not looking for sympathy, but this is my theory. It's what I've, I think I've figured out. Generally speaking, for the past 10 or so years, uh, when I stand up, I'm preaching from one of the epistles. You know, in most times when you're looking at the epistles, you've got uh, Peter or Paul or, or whoever it is, John, whomever, and, and writing in that, and they're approaching things from a one perspective, which is just to tell us how to live. You know, to deal with us as Christians, as the church of Christ, and to instruct us on how to live, how to handle situations, how to qualify uh, men for the eldership or or anything like that, or for to be deacons, as Cliff talked about on Sunday and Sunday afternoon especially. Uh, all that material to me is very similar. And I consider myself to be decently educated when it comes to those epistles. And that's what I go to. And as course, as I travel, that's generally that or something that I may pull from the Old Testament is generally where I would go. And that doesn't seem to bother me at all. But what I have theorized, I think I've figured out, uh, going back, and I have it in num- a number of years, and teaching through one of the gospel accounts, I think has what's got me shook up. Uh, because when you're talking about the life of Christ, and you're trying to relay that message to people and to get them to grasp, to understand, to consider really who Jesus was, for me that has seemed to be an impossible task. And so I know we've gone we've gone slowly and incrementally and in, in all of that, but... And in most cases, I feel like we've done a decent job in our discussions back and forth of trying to relay that. But uh, for me, and maybe you understand this, maybe you don't, but the burden just seems that much, you know, heavier. The goals are that much higher because it it matters little what the epistles may teach as far as, you know, how we handle ourselves as Christians or how we handle ourselves as a congregation, the church, Uh, That doesn't matter very much unless we first have a real appreciation, I think is the best word for that, of who Jesus was, uh, what he was sent to this earth to accomplish, and what he was willing to do. And even more than that, in many cases, the service or the compassion that he uh, used while he was on earth. And if you and I are able to accomplish in learning that, and then in turn reflecting that, uh, toward the world, I think we make the biggest impact. As a matter of fact, I know that we do. So uh, I don't know if that explains anything, but I thought it'd be better just to tell you that. And so if I seem nervous, then that I think that's why. And uh, so I hope you can appreciate that. And I hope really in one sense that as we study and discuss that together, maybe you'll feel the same way. Uh, I don't mean to burden you, but I hope that when you read God's word, in particular, when you're reading about Jesus and his life and his purpose, In life and in death, even that you'll appreciate that even more. So, there we go. That's at least that. I don't know that that helped anything. Uh, Last week, we did have some technical difficulties, and I feel like uh, I didn't accomplish what I wanted to. We wanted to get through verses 12 and 13. And so, my consideration at the very end of last week was, well, we've done what we can do. I'll bail out, we'll move on, and we'll get into something else. And then I had a number of people throughout the week that reached out and said, hey, uh, I hope that you'll go back and particularly share with us the screen that you had because there's a lot of that stuff that we have come to appreciate that we can jot down in our margins and all. So I agreed with a couple of those people that we would kind of scan back through that, not as a full review, not to try to uh, get anything outside of it, but at least for your benefit, hopefully, in that. So in considering verses 12 and 13, as we've said already for a couple different weeks, we're talking about the challenge that Jesus faced. Of course, by that, his temptation, what it is that he was confronted with, if you want to call it that, uh, by Satan. And that's what Mark summarizes in verses 12 and 13. Just to read it again, here's what it says. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And when he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted of Satan and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. As I've tried to reflect on that, just that particular text, it's extremely important that we appreciate the parallel accounts. And in this case, there are two of the four Gospels other than uh, Mark that have those parallel accounts, and you can see them on the screen, and you may have those charts even still. Uh, those directly relate either to Matthew's account, which is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and or Luke's account, which is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And so we looked at, and back on last week, we read through parts of Matthew's account and uh, tried to use Luke's account primarily as, as our guide for this because Mark is so brief, Mark is so quick. He covers in two verses, really, as we have them numbered out, the types of things that Mar, uh, Matthew as well as Luke thought were Supposed to be given much more detail. Of course, not arguing, not denying at all, all of these men inspired of God to write, and God using apparently their styles and their approaches, and of course, uh, Mark's being very quick paced, fast paced, that may explain why Mark chose to do what he did. But as we look through back through those accounts, we read again pieces or bits out of what we found in Matthew's account and they express that over in Luke's account as well. Uh, we got down to trying to make some application toward the end. That's where we kind of uh, closed out. and I just pick up really right there in that point. But there were a few differences. If you looked at what those three gospel accounts said, there were a few differences in the way they expressed things, obviously. There was even a difference in the order in which those things were expressed when you look at Matthew's account versus Luke's. And each of those, as I've kind of numbered out, and I realize you can't see this in the back. Likely some of you can't see it in the front. I don't intend on all of this to be seen. It's just quotation of Scripture, really. But there were basically three challenges that were expressed. There were three comebacks, to use kind of our modern vernacular. There were three ways that Jesus came back or replied or rebutted or answered those questions. And as the Gospels divide them out, those uh, things came down to basically three things. Remember? Uh, satan first of all challenged jesus and said if and that's the word if or since that'd be the first class conditional in the greek but if thou be the son of god command these stones to be made bread of course jesus comes back with what we have in matthew's account matthew 4 and verse 4 about a man should not live by bread alone and every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god that's so forth in the second case following luke's order which chronologically may be a little bit more accurate Uh, we had him then in turn coming to Jesus and saying to him, if thou wilt, and he's presented him, all the kings of the world in a moment of time, as the scripture tells us, he presented him with the fact that Satan said, I will give you all of this. Satan told him, Satan implied uh, that he had power over all those things, that he owned those things, and he even more than that, had the ability to hand that over to Jesus. And all Jesus was required to do to receive those kingdoms, supposedly there's large quotes around that, was just bow down and worship me. Very simple, very straightforward. Of course, Jesus answers him in rebuttal and quotes a a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13 where he basically says to him, look, I can only worship God. Uh, We should not worship anyone save the Lord thy God. He's referring to his Father God. And then on that third occasion in Luke's account, and again, Matthew and Luke revert these, reverse these. But on that third occasion, he tells them that if you be the son of God, then cast yourself down off of this temple. And in this case, Satan actually quoted scripture. And he actually quoted it accurately, although he wasn't quoting the right uh, context of it. But Satan actually quoted scripture and lets Jesus know, supposedly, if you throw yourself off this temple... All that's going to happen is the angels are going to swoop in. They're going to keep bury you up. They're going to keep you from being hurt or harmed, and you'll be fine. Jesus, of course, rebuts that as well to tell him that thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And that's basically a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. So we took those things just in review, and we started to make some application of this we paralleled those accounts, Matthew's as well as Luke's and Mark's, along beside of what we find in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And in that context, we're told, they're told uh, that we should love not the world, verse 15, neither the things are in the world. And in verse 16, tells us all that is in the world contains or pertains to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that seemingly parallels exactly along with these accounts particularly luke's chronological order of such even if they were out of order it wouldn't take away from it we were making the application as we were trying to hurriedly close last week after the delay in the fact that the lust of the flesh seemed to lean itself toward doing something or the passions if you will that jesus would have had of course that uh, temptation was that if you're the son of god command these stones to be made bread. And that that had to do with the fact that Jesus had been in the wilderness. He had been fasting there for 40 days. He had been without food, apparently without water, which, by the way, a quotation you can, uh, a scripture reference, I would encourage you to put in your margin right here, out beside verse 12, is Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 15, which actually seems to describe this similar or same wilderness, which I read a few things today about. Most scholars assume this wilderness that, Jesus was in, covered about a 36 mile by about a 65 mile uh, square mile radius, or not radius, whatever that is. And that that wilderness there, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, in verse 15, be the same one, it literally says there that that wilderness had within it no water. And so it very well could have been and likely was the case. He had no food, which would be difficult to survive even. Uh, by any human, if you will, God in the body, for 40 days, even more difficult to take hold of that if he had no water. I couldn't prove that, but that may be a similar reference. It also lists there in the next verse, which would be in that case, verse 16, the serpents and the wild beasts and all that were there and the dangers that were implied in it. But that's generally speaking about where Jesus was. First temptation. Second temptation not only the lust of the flesh, but the lust of the eyes, that seems to pertain to Jesus having something or his possessions. Again, Satan's temptation to him was, I've got all this, I'll give it all to you, and all you've got to do is bow down and worship me. How many times as we as Christians, or at least seen others do it, uh, we might as well admit we've done it as well, that we are taken away from God, if not for just a moment, or a period in our lives, because we seek to have Things, our possessions become our biggest temptations at times. Jesus in that, and then finally, as we were closing last week, we're about to approach this last one, the pride of life. Again, that third temptation that was presented to Jesus, seemingly being that he takes him up onto the pinnacle of the temple. That literally meaning that word means he's on the wing of a temple. Most scholars believe that that was probably where Jesus was was at least, and this is a very wide span of of measurement, but it was at least 60 foot off the ground. That's from the ruins they have today. But when you go back into the time and consider that Jerusalem was built up and up and up upon different levels, it could have been and could be as much as 600 feet off the ground. What does that matter? Well, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans other than to say that what Satan tempted Jesus to do ultimately... Had he just jumped, if you will, cast himself off, had he not been borne up by angels, or he had had taken hold of that, he could have potentially and likely would have died. Why does that matter to us? Well, one, by him giving in to any of these temptations of Jesus, that would have allowed Jesus to sin. Well, he, he did not do that, thankfully. Two, that would have called Jesus potentially to die which would have taken him to die a death that was not planned of God, which ultimately be crucifixion, and we would be lost. I kind of thought a little bit about this today. I don't, I don't know that this is exactly the right way to express it, but I want, I want to try at least. Satan in these three temptations, we'll illustrate the last one in a moment, but in each of these three temptations, he was not tempting or trying to deny Jesus his deity. He was not trying to deny him his deity. I've often thought that he was. It seems more likely what he really wanted to deny deny him was his humanity. You say, wait a minute, Jim, I don't know that you're right on that. I don't know that I'm right either. But if you consider that, he gave Jesus credit in the beginning in one sense of being the Son of God. Again, that word if, if, is actually a Greek, first class conditional, meaning since. He gives him credit with the fact and doesn't try to take away his credit as being deity. But what would have ruined our lives and our eternities is if he could take away from him his humanity. If Jesus was not the human that he was, to be able to die as a sacrifice on our behalf, we would be lost. So when he looks to Jesus and says, hey, why don't you just be like every other man? You're hungry. Why don't you make food and eat? You see, he allowed him the deity, or at least gave him the credit that you could do this. A mere man couldn't do that, but you could do this. When Jesus takes him on the high mountain and says, look, all these kingdoms can be yours. He in he, I guess in Satan's mind, I don't even want to get in the mind of Satan really, but in Satan's mind, he's saying to him, look, I can hand this over and you can be the king over all of it. He's giving him deity, but he wants to tempt him in his humanity. And then the last one here, when he takes him up onto the Pinnacle Temple and says, cast yourself off, again, if he takes away his humanity right then, in that moment, we all stand as lost. But how does this temptation, this last one, relate to us? You know, you and I may be hungry, and we may say, well, I want to, in that case... I want to I want to take hold of my passions I want to fulfill my flesh I want to take care of this this physical hunger or whatever that hunger would be for for anything in life or you and I may encounter a situation where we say to ourselves well you know what I do want to have possessions my eyes have caused me to lust I'm lusting in my eyes I see things I want things I want to have as much as anybody else in the world or maybe more than anybody else in the world we could be tempted with that but how is it relatable of us and our pride of life or our person? How is that relatable? And how did that matter to Jesus? I mean, how does it matter if Jesus had pride, if you want to call it that, because he, he's God. He sits on the, on the pinnacle of the universe. He's He's God. Uh, why would it even matter? Why couldn't he pop his proverbial suspenders and say, well, Satan, you got that right. I'm God, and if I choose to jump off here, then that's just what will have to happen. And, And you quoted scripture in that case, Satan, and the angels will bear me up. They won't let me dash my foot against a stone. Why would that matter? What's the temptation? I think a practical way, this is for illustration only, but a practical way of understanding that last one there, this person, is to put in context where he was again. Jesus had been out in the wilderness 40 days. Most likely he was what we might call way out in the wilderness. He had gone out further in the wilderness than what John was when John was being surrounded by the throngs of people, when John was being made popular in that sense. He's gone even farther than that. He's gone into a desolate place, basically. He's gone to a place where he's absolutely, save Satan, there being with him, apparently alone. And being alone, he is in total isolation from the world. So he has no encouragement. He has no help. He has no assistance. He has no way of of increasing. And I'm not saying that he was, but from the perspective of human, he's, he's not there. Jesus is not there able to increase his influence or his popularity or to gain anything from him. that's the first two the third one though occurs not in the wilderness but back in jerusalem on the wing of the temple probably herod's palace he's on the wing of that place and jerusalem was an enormously populated enormously well-traveled crowded area where all manner of people for, for even decades before that had traveled to Jerusalem and spent time in Jerusalem. And even now, as the church is being, uh, is being prepared, the way is being prepared by Jesus, there were, there were people all over the place. What would it do for Jesus if he did cast himself off? What would it do for Jesus if he cast himself down and if the angels did take charge as proclaimed supposedly, misapplication, but proclaimed by Satan. What if they did bear him up? That would be Jesus giving into his own pride and personality. How did Jesus ultimately enter into Jerusalem? On the back of a colt, a donkey, whatever you would call that. Very humble, uh, very kind of unnoticeable out of the way now we know he did eventually have people that were you know throwing the 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 things in front of him making away some but very quiet in some senses very silent to one point but what if jesus had taken the bait if you want to call that taken hold of the temptation that satan is actually offering him which is why don't you just cast yourself off the temple where all these people beneath us are hustling and bustling through the streets. And they look up and they see this man who they may recognize to one extent. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's just Jesus. That's Jesus of Nazareth. That's John the baptizer's, you know, cousin or whatever. And that's the one that John claimed. Just a few verses back up the page in any of the context. That's the one John claimed was to be the Messiah, the Lamb of God. What if Jesus cast himself down then? What type of triumphant, impactful entry would that have been? What would that have done for the ego of a typical average human being had he not been the son of god god in the body what would that have done for him what would that have done to increase his popularity what type of person with pomp and circumstance and clout would he have been how, how great would he have been as a king if all these thousands of people i'm just assuming there would have noticed him and noted him about to jump off the temple and maybe they stood back like someone might do today if someone were about to commit suicide jump off a bridge and the crowds gathered around and they said him they see him leap they see him coming down headlong and then all at once the angels swoop in and bear him up and it's just my vision of it they bear him up they kind of catch him it looks almost like he's been taken up by a parachute and he's brought down really slowly right into the multitudes that would have definitely been the pinnacle of pride for any other person. What did Jesus do? He said, no. Jesus' reply to that was the fact that I'm not going to do that. And you, Satan, you're not going to tempt the Lord your God. He said that to Satan. You're not going to tempt God. Given the fact that Satan had already said, if you be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread, you're not going to tempt God. And this comes in, Mark's account, Matthew's and Luke's, Mark's is the most immediate, if you will, the fastest pace. This comes in right behind Jesus having been baptized by John the Baptizer. What we refer to when we're presenting those ideas, it comes in at a time when Jesus had been you know, presented or confirmed, if you will, to be the Son of God, it comes in right then. At the height of the presentation, the introduction, whatever you want to call that, of Jesus, he's taken immediately to the wilderness and tempted of God, of the devil. In the context there, then looking at it from that perspective, and these are just a few different words, verses 9 through 11, you might say, or Jesus' coronation. Now, the word coronation is a word we ain't using Mumford or Ironithon, I guess, in many years, if ever. It means he's being crowned. He's being given credit for being the Son of God by God. It comes up in his temptation. These two verses here, verse 12 and 13. And then it comes up in what context we're going to be in on the next time we get to it. Verses 14 and 15, it comes in in his invitation. These things are back to back to back, and that's where the next context will matter. Now, what do we do with with this idea? If you parallel, again, someone could argue you couldn't do it, I'm just presenting maybe you can. If you parallel Mark's account, along with Matthew's, along with Luke's. And you compare that head to head with 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. You line those up to imply that uh, first, uh, Hebrews 4 and 15, which lets us know that Jesus was tempted, quote, in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. That means in every category. If you line those things up, and they attain themselves to maybe these practical applications of the temptation dealing with his passions. Maybe it deals with his possessions. Maybe it even does deal with his person. What do we get out of it? You say, well, the way that I've always used the text and and understood the text as I've studied it is that we learn by this to do what Jesus did, which is that if when we are tempted of Satan, and we will be, when we're tempted, the way to beat that temptation is to quote Scripture. You say, why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't make an argument of himself. He, he didn't make an argument that came from his own mind and his own thoughts. He didn't uh, try to make some practical application and uh, easy way to understand for Satan and try to illustrate to Satan you know, what it is that uh, Satan was doing wrong and, and how he was in denial and he wasn't going to participate in such. He simply brought Scripture. And that is some of the key to what we are able to do. But what else did He do? As I categorize these things, I've actually put Scripture as four. I don't mean that to be in any order as far as one's more important or less important than the other. But I I do think that I've made a mistake in my life. I, I just think I have in that I have minimized this text to just say, well, there it is, Jesus quoted Scripture. If Satan comes at you, you quote Scripture, you be ready. You know, study to show yourself approved. Uh, Hide these things in your heart so you won't sin. Just throw Scripture at Satan, that'll handle it. You can move on with life and that's it. the problem is, anyone can quote Scripture anyone could learn a verse or two or 2,000 from Scripture and supposedly rebut back with any temptation that is before them. It obviously could, could have a lot of practicality, a lot of uh, way to handle that that would be perfect and fine. And, and that would be what would prevent us from getting involved in sin to one point. But Jesus had more going for him than that. Such as, we won't take much time with it, but such as sonship. Jesus was the son of God. You say, well, I'm not the son of God in the way Jesus was. No, but as Christians, we're children of God. From that perspective, it has to do really with our relationship that we have with God and the fact that we can not only quote scripture from from his book, the Bible, but also the fact that we can literally look him in the eye and say, look, Satan, uh, you really don't have a lot of bearing on me. You really don't do a lot to tempt me in one sense because I'm going to claim in this case my God in this. There has to be that relationship. There has to be that sonship that exists between God our Father, Jesus Christ in this case as well, and who we are and who we count to be. You know, I've heard that kind of cliche statement, it doesn't matter who you are, but it matters whose you are. That kind of an idea. That's one of the ways that Jesus came at him. There's a little bit of a reference to to note that as well in the previous chapter, and this is Mark chapter 3. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3. I didn't note that, but Luke chapter 3 as well. Then there has to be submission. You know, Jesus doesn't reflect it as much here uh, verbatim as he would later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, which I think uh, he was tempted continuously of Satan. I'm not denying that at all, but he is probably his second worser that's my word. Worse or temptation to this, if there is anything any worse or of or that case, is in the Gethsemane. And in every one of those cases and seemingly throughout his whole life, and even here as he did quote scripture, he did quote God for his rebuttals to this or his comebacks, he's proving that he was in full submission to God's will. You know, Jesus again, being being human in body, a God in that body, he would have had the option to take hold of any of these temptations. We don't know exactly the outcome or result of that. We only can assume, but he could have gotten hold of that. But he didn't. He submitted the will of God in every case. It has to do with satisfaction. One reference out here, as we close really quickly, but. I've got to get to a place in my life where Jesus apparently was where I am satisfied with being gods. And that's a possessive gods. To say, I am gods. I do what God desires of me. I do what God teaches me. I live after His life and I'm completely satisfied with that. Those three categories of temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, uh, Do not get to anyone who can literally in their heart, completely deep in their heart, say, I'm satisfied with what God has given me. Yes, Jesus is hungry. Obviously he would be. But he says God's enough. Satan challenged him, you know, I'll give you all these kingdoms. I'll just take whatever God gives me. Well, i tell you what, you can be much more popular than you are now. Just cast yourself up. No, I'll take whatever God gives me. And then the last place right here, just for illustration, then he comes with Scripture. Then he uses the Word of God to be his sword, to be his tool. And that may be, may be, just an inkling of what Jesus accomplished. But he did it because of God. I appreciate your attention and your patience and uh, be reading ahead next week. You got a whopping two verses next week. Really, you can go from verse uh, 14 to 20, actually, but mainly the two verses next week. Jesus literally finally starts what we might call or refer to as his public ministry. Thank you.